0: Greetings everybody out there in Dreamland. Namaste and shalom. Iron sharpens iron and a friend sharpens a friend. You are listening to the Beyond Top Secret Texan. I am the Beyond Top Secret Texan. Broadcasting to you from the coast with the most. The Gulf Coast. The third coast of Texas. The darkest truths from the darkest web need to be told. And you must listen to the beyond-top-secret Texan. Lockheed's Skunk Works employee speaks out technology from extraterrestrials. Don Phillips, contractor, United States Air Force, CIA, Lockheed Skunk Works.
1: My name is Don Phillips, and I live in Los Angeles, California, and I was born in Los Angeles, California, and I have worked with government-sponsored agencies as well as uh, spent my uh, appropriate time in the military.
0: John Phillips was in the United States Air Force at Las Vegas Air Force Base when UFOs were seen moving at enormous speeds near Mount Charleston, northwest of Las Vegas. addition, he worked with Kelly Johnson at the Lockheed Skunk Works of Design and Construction of the U-2 and SR-71 Blackbird. He testifies that we have extraterrestrial devices and achieve tremendous technological advances from their study.
1: And as a civilian, but also as a uh, military uh, person, I did have experiences with what we would refer to as Unidentified flying objects.
0: He states that in the 1950s and 1960s, NATO did research into the origin of E.T. races and disseminated the information through Majestic 12. He lists a few of the technologies we're able to develop because of E.T.s, including computer chips, lasers, night vision, and bulletproof vests. Listen to Don Phillips' testimony.
1: In frame about 19 or 20, I started to work for, um, I, I entered college after high school, but I also uh, went to work for Lockheed Aircraft Corporation. And after a year of employment in the regular field of aircraft construction and design, Uh, I was asked if I would like to go to a new department, or one that was already in gear, for a new project, and of course I said yes, uh, not knowing exactly what it was, uh, but I figured that uh, it was in my best interest, and I did have interest in it, because I got a little inkling of it from the person, the upper management that had told me about this. Now, my studies had to do with the design, engineering, mechanical, electrical, and aeronautics I was a pilot, a private pilot at that time, and uh, still am. And at the time, uh, 19 what would it be, 1961, 62, uh, I started my new job in what is called the Skunk Works. And I was introduced to the various divisions of the Skunk Works. It was purchasing, expediting, and engineering. My, I served in all of those uh, during the 60s, and this went through 1965. Uh, our projects were, of course, a contract, special aircraft, uh, flying aircraft, for the government, the United States government, and uh, other agencies of the government, of course, supplied pilots. And I say this because it's important to the defense of the United States and the free world uh, free world means those that believe in the uh, opportunities for all humankind. The projects that I worked on uh, were ongoing, and the, when I left the employment of the Skunk Works to go into the military, I felt that this is something I wanted to come back to after serving, uh, serving my country. I, I think it was 1965, actually, when I first uh, went into the uh, military, and discovered that some of the assignments that I was uh, put on in Las Vegas or near Las Vegas, Nevada, uh, were very much uh, uh, in close proximity to our uh, areas where we tested our aircraft, and a lot of commonly known as Area 51. We call it uh, Dreamland, the Hog Farm, uh, the Lake. You know, this place would flood once in a while, and it was really unusable. <laughs> As far as landing and taking off, but uh, that's beside the point. Uh, what, what the side that I know it from is that it is high security, and not really having to spend too much time in the area. I uh, got a lot of feedback from people from my division at the Skunk Works to uh, as to what is happening out there. We're testing airplanes, and everybody knows that it tested special aircraft, such as the. Blackbird, uh, which I'm very proud of because that's my baby. And it uh, holds some of the world's records to this day. Now, the uh, the thing about being in the military in that area is that they were radar sites and we were attached to Nellis Air Force Base. Now, Nellis is a flight test, or uh, pilot testing, or pilot training uh, base for the U.S. military. But at the same time, it teaches and uh, incur- uh, brings in pilots from other countries. North of Las Vegas, at the way up at the end of the northeast of the Gunnery Range, uh, there is what we know as the Area 51. Uh, but across across the highway that goes north from Las Vegas is a site called Angels Peak. Angels Peak, in itself, uh, covered the Area 51. Covered the. Uh, Demonstration teams, uh, the Thunderbirds as we know them, but it also covered a lot of other area, like the Atomic Energy Commission uh, test uh, test grounds to the west and to the north. Angels Peak was a was a classified radar installation, and it's uh, a lot of radar installations as we know them are up in the middle of nowhere. This one had a nice setting because it was uh, east of Mount Charleston, so. We would monitor the aircraft coming from Las Vegas into uh, Area 51, or whatever passed by, and it was whatever passed by that became most interesting one night uh, in 19, I would say, 1966 to 67, somewhere in that area. We, uh, I stayed on base most of the time and uh, heard a lot of commotion about 1 o'clock in the morning. And being that it was the summertime, I thought, well, you know, it's, it must be very warm. We were at 8,000 feet. The radar domes were at 10,500, approximately. And I decided to go get up, and I said, wow, it sure is loud. The sound is, carries a long ways in these days. So I went out, walked up to the main road, and up near my office, which uh, has a short distance to the chow hall, and i thought it, maybe it was time for the crews to come down for dinner but it was another hour when i got to the area where the fellows were standing there was a group of about five people and they were looking up in the air and i looked up in the air and saw these objects uh, lighted objects moving uh, uh, at tremendous speeds it's like uh, what we would know as special effects today, and it was in the area slightly to the north and uh, northwest of Mount Charleston. And Mount Charleston, by the way, is uh, uh, over, I think, just about 13,000 feet. So all of a sudden I, I says, wow, what an aerial show. I didn't think too much of it because it's not something that surprised me that they were doing these kind of acute maneuvers. But right at that instant, when I saw these things making acute angles and traveling uh, maybe, I would estimate, 3,000 to 4,000 miles per hour and then immediately making an acute turn, I knew that they weren't ours. And I had a special background with the Skunk Works, Lockheed Aircraft, Advanced Development and Engineering, that said, these are not ours. And having been a pilot, I'm thinking what kind of forces these, uh, the, the, if there are people in these craft, what kind of forces their bodies are taking? Then I, I said, well, these, these have to be guided by some type of intelligent uh, pilot, if you will, having, and being a pilot. And I thought, wow, how long will this go on? So it went on, apparently, uh, from my point of view, for about another oh, 90 seconds. And then all of a sudden they seemed to group from what would be hundreds of miles in the sky to the east, or to the west, and they came into a circle, rotated in a circle, and didn't disappear. And I thought, wow, what a show. So the uh, the security sergeant happened to be on duty, and we all looked at each other and said, gee, this is really something. And he said, well, we shouldn't really say anything about this, and... um, just let things take their course of events. Well, I had a, I have a buddy that was the chief radar operator named Anthony Casar. And Anthony was the first one to get off of the bus after the door opened. And I was standing right up close to the, the doors when they opened up. It's a military-style bus, Air Force. And I, I looked at him, and Anthony's a very large fellow with his blonde-flowing hair and, and a jovial spirit. And he was as serious as anybody could possibly be. And he was almost as white as a sheet, as white as, his blonde as his hair. And he'd usually get a good tan as well. But this time he was uh, different. And he, first things, he took one step down the steps and he looked at me and he said, did you see those? And I says, yeah, we've been watching him for the, uh, some of them, uh, the fellows have been watching for the last four to five minutes. And I've seen him for a little, maybe, a little more than 90 seconds. And he says, "We saw them on the radar screen, and we documented them." He says, "They're not bogeys, they're not apparitions; they are real, solid objects." And of course, they would have to be, in order to get a fix with radar—the kind of radar we use there—would uh, have to be a solid object. And it's not that we tracked them with the radar; they were—they would go in and out of the of the signal and register in that way. And there were, uh, I think he finally documented that there were six or to seven, because it happened very quick, and it's very real. So as far as the inhabitants thereof, we don't know. But the fact that they can perform the maneuvers and travel at the speeds that we estimated, uh, and also <clears throat> as estimated by the radar operators and their scopes, what did they, estimate? they estimated, uh, around uh, 40 uh, 38 to 4200 miles per hour equivalent ground speed I mean that's really quick I mean these things are darting across the sky first they look like a star and then they move and in any direction triangle or make any kind of a, any kind of a straight line or just hover there were uh, let's say five of us on the ground that's including myself and in the in, on the radar in the radar towers on duty that night um I, at least four plus the officer of the day and um, so you know there's a couple of handfuls of people now when there's an occurrence such as this in the Air Force uh, most of us had at least secret uh, most of us had top secret and then there's a few that had above top secret clearances uh, myself I dealt with the documents so uh, of all types and my, and for that bit of sur- for my, that time period in the service it was a top secret uh, the people that would record the information all this is recorded and it is documented and then it is signed off and then it is put in the archives and our division uh, our radar squadron was part of the 26th air division which was in Phoenix near Phoenix Arizona so where they go from there, it could be you know, the Pentagon, it could be uh, United States Air Force uh, headquarters. They were definitely, I mean, the way I picture them, they were bigger some of the, than some of the closest stars, uh, much bigger. You know, I would say by the size of a 50 cent piece, you know, uh, about, no, I don't know, about 10, 12 feet away. That's what it looked like. Maybe a little bigger, uh, but but like a silver dollar. There we go. And moving across the sky, uh, in a manner that did not leave a trail, okay, and not that we could ascertain, but they would just come to a stop and do do a you know a sixty degree, forty five degree, ten degree turn after stopping and, and immediately reverse this action. And there isn't any, you know, having been a pilot and a military search and rescue pilot, uh, on, uh, along with the flying, uh, there isn't uh, there, there isn't any kind of training that can that we can take that can bring us into a realm that can withstand that kind of a speed and then stop and immediately go back the opposite direction and accelerate from zero to, you know, up to 3,000 miles an hour. When I was working with the Skunk Works, we signed an agreement with the National Security Agency and the National Security Council as well as the CIA and we kept very quiet about things because they always knew where we were and what we were doing. And I automatically had that uh, team spirit and we were a big family there and I was very proud of that, having worked directly for Kelly Johnson. I'll put it this way, I'll answer you this way. Yes, there were new projects being launched all the time. And yes, there were new propulsion systems at that time. And You you understand that the SR-71, we took some great risks and I feel... Yeah, but there was internal combustion. Um, well, no, yeah, it was, but it was very advanced. And some of the technologies that we learned, I was asked a question by a fellow businessman uh, several years ago, 1997. Uh, do you think that some of your... Uh, the technology that you incorporated into that aircraft came from outside sources, outside the planet Earth? And I said, this is very possible. But I said you have to remember we came up with some. Even we still have to make it work here on planet Earth. And yes, there's a good chance, but that, nevertheless, it, everything worked quite well. And uh, the propulsion system that you're asking about, I heard that there were, but the left hand never knew what the right hand was doing, and for good reason. Um, again they didn't want us asking questions they wanted to stay focused on the projects that we we're working on uh, i came in at the tail end of the u2 project that still continues uh, their use of that type of aircraft and went all the way through uh the first four models that i had to do with design and the construction and the eventual flight test were not the first military models they we have another air force in this united states that works on contract and i will identify that name and dr greer if you could if you have to edit this out would you please do so uh, it's of the last uh it's a three-letter agency and i feel that uh, they worked with contract pilots very good pilots uh, so our first four models were for them they were very special models and then came the sr-71 uh, otherwise known popularly as the blackbird so the propulsion systems, yes, there were new ones being developed. From what I learned over a period of years, uh, anti-gravitational, actually using the force that is generated by the uh, naturally by the planet Earth, is to repel off of it. There was research going on with that, with as maybe by consultants to the Skunk Works. We know you uh, can safely say that yes, there were some captured craft from 1945, 47, was it? Uh, In Roswell, New Mexico. And yeah, they were real. And yes, we really did get some technology from them. And yes, we really did put it to work. And we can thank people in the United States Army to have the foresight to put these into industry for the benefit of of, of the people of the world. I know this to be a fact. We put it to use. But it took us a long time to figure out what it was and then figure out how we can use it, and then what to use it for. And are those products useful for humanity? It wasn't, it wasn't until the, actually later on, uh, in the 80s and 90s, this recent, when I founded a company called Light City Technologies. It was a technology development corporation of a secret nature. We work with data signals, uh, avionics, uh, computer, Uh, And uh, as I had talked with you before, we were, we knew each other from certain agencies of the military in contract with the CIA or other branches of, uh, usually called unseen industry. I I would say that's a good term. We can term it black, uh, deep black, or hidden. And, okay, that might be okay for the popular, but having... Participated in it, and we still do once in a while on contract because we might get something useful that can save lives and uh, save money as well uh, for everybody, not just this country. the the, uh, the The question that there is advanced advanced. We would some people call them advanced races. Well. The knowledge that I have of these uh, technologies uh, coming with the aircraft or the craft that were captured here, I didn't see the craft nor did I see the bodies but I certainly know some of the people that did. And of course they're much, you know, they're passed on now uh, from their earthly bodies but there was no question uh, that there are people or beings from outside the planet that have lived here for a long time. And it isn't just something new that's been happening in the last couple of years. There's been NATO research conducted, uh, joint, uh, joint research, joint meaning many different countries, and this has, it's been documented uh, as to who those races are, and their population at that time, and uh, this was back in the early 60s, this is when, what precipitated the need for our aircraft was the result of these reports coming out from NATO. These reports were started in the late 50s, they were finished in the early 60s and disseminated to the appropriate leaders of various countries, I think, but they were kept under lock and key, if you will. and. <clears throat> They, the prominence or the greater exposure or greater occurrence of unidentified flying objects uh, became uh, what you call it, the objects became more known, and they actually stopped. They would tie. They would communicate. We have records from 1954 uh, that were meetings between our own leaders of this country, as well as a, a meeting with the leaders of our country here in California. And as I understand it from the written documentation, that uh, we were asked if we would allow them to be here and do research. And the statement I have uh, read was that, well, how can we stop you? You're so advanced. And uh, I will say, by this camera and this sound that it it was President Eisenhower that had this meeting and it was on film sort of like what we're doing now. Uh, Bringing it up to date uh, the NATO report gave that there were 12 races and that the final summary they had to have contacts to go to these races in order to understand who they are what they're doing and what they could do. And It didn't get into the contacts, but it certainly did verify that they haven't been here for just uh, a few years, maybe hundreds, maybe thousands of years. And this was written in the text. Getting back to the technology that we might have used, uh, the chips, the lasers, the night vision, uh, the what we call bulletproof vests, uh, and, and a few others. Uh, these were all used, uh, these were all developed. The chips, what they call the central processing units, uh, were developed in great strides. Now, why did that happen? Why, you put a few things together and do a bit of research, you think, wow, boy, we did benefit. And in, a t- in several talks, these people, uh, it wasn't because they were necessarily sharing the technology, it's because we picked it up. And put it into a what's called the file cabinet, and we ascertain like, oh, are these people safe? Are these people that have come in uh, out from outside? Are they are they hostile? Well, if they were hostile, uh, I my own knowledge is and and feeling I don't know about all of them, is that we could have been um, with their weaponry as it might be used. Uh, could have destroyed us a long time ago or it could have done some damage i you think then it was you, you listed all these devices you think those came from studying extraterrestrial devices yes yes some have no doubt they came from the roswell events i i know that it's some of the technologies that came out of the roswell incident the technologies meaning that which came with the e- extraterrestrial craft and the reason they crash is they are uh, uh, their the guidance mechanism was interrupted by our by our radar or by our by some equipment that we have i mean it was quite by accident i think <laughs> i don't know about that part of it but even more validating for me was that one of our contract scientists uh, for our private concern light city technologies incorporated he worked with them he worked with a couple of those technologies while he was with a very prominent intelligence agency of the United States government. So that, that was good enough for me because this... What did you learn from, from that? What I learned from that? That anything's possible. You need something? Let's build it. You know, uh, uh, and it isn't... Um, everything has a physical shape in this dimension or a tangibility uh, the idea is everything starts out with an idea. They had to start out with an idea for these visitors to planet Earth. And uh, maybe, they had, uh, maybe they had color-coded what we would call fiber optics today that could bend light and that could guide light to one data location to another data location. Well, guess what? We've been talking about it for six years. We have that type of technology now. The one person that I've talked to only... Outside of the military or the government level that would otherwise keep this out of the public view, is Dr. Greer, and the reason for that is, is because he under, he makes it the professional approach, which is more in line with the way we were in the military. Yes, the the lenses, uh, there were some uh, there were some eye, actually what we would call the eyeball coverings, uh, that allowed the uh, inhabitants or the mm, people inside the craft that made the journey across space uh, allowed them to see in the minimal light that we know is now present uh, present during space travel. And we know that from our own astronauts as well as astronauts of other countries. Uh, these lenses magnified light but also brought in a certain type of clarity. And my reason for mentioning this was that it was Earth doctors and specialists and interested in what's beyond all this, beyond the physical world, uh, that got them into the uh, removal of these lenses. I think uh, there's a lot of this has been well documented by Colonel Corso. I'm sure you're familiar. Maybe you know him. Uh, <clears throat> you know who was there with him? Well, there were a lot of people there with him. But I, a lot of the things that are said in the book are documented in the book by uh, the How for Corso. Uh, I can verify, uh, corroborated uh, by the people that I have worked with and do work with now. So I can say that what I know about it is is very true. The pathway that it took, that's another story. We talk about hidden hidden uh, technologies, why don't they, or all these hidden things, and why don't they let people know about it, well, uh, they hide it from hide it from the public, well, it's probably good reason for some of it, uh, they don't, you know, maybe the government didn't understand it themselves, uh, being in the Air Force, maybe we didn't fully know what it was. Take those technologies from us, well. It took a while to figure out how they worked before we knew what to make from it and then how to get it into industry, how can it benefit the people. Uh, The guidance mechanism were nothing. There was no yoke, there was no wheel. There was a console, very colorful, and they used their hands. And by the thought process and by the way they moved their hands in rhythm with their thoughts was the guidance for the aircraft. That was one reason why, if they took their attention off of what they were doing for their craft and put it on me, it might have upset the uh, flight pattern for their craft. Now, I, it goes beyond, it goes beyond, just the way that they actually flew the craft. But they, what, the meaning behind it, is that they were trained to be one and use their whole being. To, flow within, to work with the natural forces of what we call the universe that's within the planet's uh, sphere of influence and perhaps outside. This was very clear. And later on, after in the, in the 80s, when we got in contact with the equipment from the Roswell incident, this is the way they discovered that perhaps the craft was being guided very much the same way. Well, that's about a 20-year spread, or less than 20. So I, this, this was just a, a, a key point. But we also have, where I live my neighborhood, I find out that we have prominent research people that are working on what we call, in the Foxbat, the movie Foxbat, where they had the helmet you says, oh, you think in this language, and you think this, and you guide it with your eyes that way, and you fire it with your thought process, and, you know, fire your armament from the aircraft. That's very real. It wasn't perfected to the point that the movie made it perfected. But, my gosh, uh, since that time, I think they have come pretty close. These are all available because we have data signals, uh, data signals we worked on with our technology company. Uh, they have, uh, in other words, the, the, the technology has caught up with the thinking process. Humanity has the quickest uh, computer built into them than any man-made computer can ever approach, and that includes the Cray computer. <clears throat> we, whatever we can think of by the way has already been done by nature it's just up to us to figure out how nature did it that allows it to work in harmony with everything else but the fact of the matter is when we all come together if we were to sit down to dinner we would say oh we're from this country and this country and that, that city and that city well it isn't any different if we're on planet earth somebody else might come from a different location long ways away We all sit down and share knowledge, maybe perhaps share food. This is the way it really happens. The sensationalism that reporters and newspapers and writers uh, put forth, um, it doesn't do the public any good. It feeds the desire for sensationalism uh, in people. We naturally have a curiosity, but it can be fed with fact and truth or it can be fed with uh, sensationalism and half-truth, or no truth at all. Uh, how I came to learn of that NATO uh, report, the research report about, uh, you know, the, the impetus for doing the report in the first place is because during that time period, uh, late 50s, 60s, there the, the Cold War was beginning, and there were ships, flying craft, intruding upon the... Russian space, or shall we say the communist space, and then there was flying craft intruding upon our space, and we each was blaming the other, and in doing so, we were ready to push buttons, and we became very, we came very close to pushing the buttons that would annihilate perhaps both sides, especially in the war zone, or in that close proximity zone, and uh, before uh, the buttons were pushed, there was a, um, a secondary type of uh, control where we call it human reason. It's something that machines can't do. And we thought, wait a minute, we're both having, we can think very quickly. This is what I mean about computers, the humans having the quickest minds and computers, faster than the cray. They assessed the situation and said, wait a minute, it's happening to both sides. Something is unusual here maybe we should do some research and then do a report because we still have the weapons, we can still push the buttons, and thus the report. That was the reason for the report. It was because of the unidentified craft encroaching on one another's airspace. It turned out it was both same, uh, same unidentified craft. And um, so it led to some very interesting information about uh, civilization and um, how it occurred here uh, on planet Earth, uh, that the, these races have been present for a long time, and perhaps they're referred to as some of the wise ones that we know about that helped educate and help train people here. Having been employed working for the CIA uh, and uh, being trained as an observer, uh, there was a, when you observe something and you want, you follow the pathway, you follow it back to its source, and then you go back further for the reason, then you get to the crux of the matter why something may have happened. But then we ascertain why it happened. And uh, the, I was studying some information, following the pathway on some information that had to do with uh, NASA, that had to do with extraterrestrial uh, visitation and how real was it didn't matter about the sensationalism of it. That's how I came to know of the NATO report. But it was also through the military channels. I had to make some phone calls, and and I did. And uh, it's very nice to knock the dust off of those because we can all say, wow, see where it's progressed since then if we were willing to talk about it. We, again, we worked uh, with the Central Intelligence Agency as contractors. Our, that was during the time of the Skunk Works. Uh, <clears throat> during the military, I had uh, been in a few different places around the world, uh, particularly with the combat support in the Vietnam War. And that uh, the actual work, the closest, the close activity, was pre-military, it was when, with the skunk works. You see, the CIA was one of our best customers. And it's the CIA that has one of the world's best air forces. It's not, (laughs) we have uh, Francis Gary Powers, yeah, we knew him, Uh, Schumacher, a lot of these people, they're very real people and they were often uh, moved around by politics. Uh, And I think that we all, we can learn something from all of this Uh, we don't necessarily have to be, uh, what would you call it, um, open, but we don't have to lie about it. We just perhaps don't say something. We've got to keep each other honest, and we've been doing that for years. The technologies that I know about that were uh, removed from the craft, and I think, (laughs) my understanding is that they were removed from the craft at Roswell uh, in a manner that, Was not known to the guards or the I call them wild security people uh, surrounding the area. Had to be done rather quietly by specialists. And um, the I might I'd like to add too that I feel that uh, I'm not positive, but I think it would some of this technology came from crafts of other crashes. Okay, not just there's a lot made of Roswell. And they're not even sure where the things, you know, went into the earth uh, near Roswell. But it's near Roswell, I know that. And uh, I won't, I wouldn't say where the other areas are, but it happened to be in the area of New Mexico. I do know that there was, let me say this, uh, that as far as the validation of these, what we call these little, little beans, little beans, um, the engineer uh, that, did some work for the military, was asked if he'd like to do a special project, uh, and it was at uh, in New Mexico, and it was to build a trainer, if you will, flight trainer, and uh, he built the flight trainer as a mechanical engineer, electrical engineer, and through the process uh, of building, he discovered that he was to work with uh, some other people after it got to a certain point. The other people came out, and they were these little guys. Uh, not much, kind of startling because they're all you know short, short people, but very, very intelligent, like very intelligent children, uh, super intelligent children. And it pretty it says pretty soon it became like uh, just the, us sitting here, and what they were building. Was a trainer for us to learn how to fly their their craft. It's a very interesting approach. (laughs) So back to your question, the technology it comes about in many different ways. We refer to the crashes, uh, the way Colonel Corso documented those, and uh, Colonel uh, General Trudeau documented those, and the input from our own associate group during the 90s, Um, there is, um, it's the uses, I think more it's the uses where we can, from one particular technology that supposedly came from one of the uh, retrievals, let's call them retrievals, retrieved technologies, Uh, the computer chip I think is one of the best examples, the computer chip started out with computers then it became used in, you know, video cameras then it became used as microcontrollers in automobiles aircraft. I think they had to they had to figure out what they were for you know, they say, hey, well, it's first of all it's silicone and uh, first of all, it is uh, or secondarily it's uh, something that looks like it exists on other other realms, outside the planet Earth perhaps and uh, also fiber optics Fiber optics was went into these computer chips, and mind you, the signal didn't travel on hard wire as we know it. Previously, uh, it traveled through a hollow core, and in the form of light, colored light, and each each color had a spectrum and an assignment to do a certain things. Um, color, light, sound, form. Um, so we have fiber optics that we put to you. And we say, "Hey, what is this spaghetti?" Uh, that uh, is in these craft attached to these computer chips, these silicone chips, and these, what looks to be electronic equipment, and what is this metal that these craft are made of, or what appears to be metal. They did a lot of research. They did reverse engineer. They had to do some testing, yes. That's something that science does. And make it repeatable. We get these things, a handheld scanner, so we can scan the body and determine it with this condition health and also treat from the same scanner uh are these things real well i can tell you personally that we've been working on them and we have them cure cancer yes diagnose and cure again politics and uh uh god bless them the uh, fda <laughs> and other people uh, whose financial interest could be damaged uh, by the release of certain technologies. And this is not a, this is not a, a weird statement or not a slam. Uh, obviously, can it, can it be a win-win-win situation for everybody? This is the way our technology development group views the use of technologies. Have you been associated with that group? Or? I founded the organization. that that became, when it became a corporation in California. Yeah, I was associated with it six, seven years before, so that would be, ah, back in the 80s, we were contractors to the CIA. Uh, That was uh, six years working for the Skunk Works. That was then, during that time period. Working for the Skunk Works was five years. And uh, the military, I was in for a standard four. Yes, there was confirmation in 1997, I met some of our, what we call our expert recon people in the military, highly trained and and uh, you know, they can blow up cities and, and terminate great thousands number of people, uh, but uh, they did an exercise. This is a confirmation. They did an exercise. They were hired by sec- security in the United States is constantly tested. That's the only way you're going to find out if it's. Bulletproof or where you need to improve. Um, They were hired, this group, uh, they do asset recovery now (laughs) for people throughout the world. They were asked to breach the security at Area 51, and they did a wonderful job. And they did it. And this is the one way I thought, how would I do it? Well, by gosh, this is the way they'd do it. And they went through and they disassembled piece by piece and, you know, they could take out the pieces piece by piece, and it would send a signal, an alert, and they could hide. These guys were experts. They were expert recon people from the military. And they still practiced some of their techniques, just because it's, it could stay in shape. What did they find? What did they find was that there were many areas at Area 51, and security is as crazy as ever there. You know, that just something for the security forces. And they're a little bit nutty because I think they're too far out away from humanity most of the time. And uh, that's a personal opinion. It's not a reflection on the management. (laughs) Um, The idea that uh, uh, there is craft being worked on is, is not just an idea. Yes, there was craft there. I've talked to others that have worked on it. There's different levels there. What you see on the surface is not representative of all of the research areas that are there, but where they're actually located, if I were to, you ask me, can you take me there? No, I couldn't do that. I can take you where the the hangars are and where the airfields are, the landing. I know there were two prominent people that, to this day, I still know, that founded what we call Area 51. They're two friends. I, I had no idea It wasn't until 1995 and 96 that we were talking about all this, swapping stories, if you will, that they told me that they looked at me and said, do you know who it was who actually went out there for Kelly Johnson? And they named the names. I'd like to keep those quiet for now because they're still related to us. I mean, it could be for the benefit of their families. Well, they're retired, but they're still involved in, I guess, by contract. DuPont, oh, God, uh, IBM, uh, what is now, I think, Western Digital. Well, I've had business dealings with EGOG. They make make, uh, products for us. They have made products for our our corporation, our private sector corporation. (laughs) They're a real, they're a contractor but good they were responsible for the safe uh, delivery and return of uh, personnel to various work locations but that isn't it that's just a small small amount of their work he says they're here or right over there and look at the size of those ships and and it's obvious they don't like us being here and what he went on to describe was like a lineup of military planes, only here's these craft uh, and their people observing him, and he's observing them, Neil Armstrong. And he said, they don't want us to be here. You have an audio tape of that? No, I have the written communication. There are three caves. And this is where in Utah? And somewhere in the Wasatch Mountains. I was trying to line up... A, to take a, a, a device, you know, this recording device like this and do research. They did. They eventually did. Uh, this, The guardians of the caves and the territory have been in the hands of the uh, Native American in that area for hundreds and hundreds and maybe thousands of years. Uh, they are taught, they are visited quite often, as they said. These people are not uh, fringe fringe, what I call fringe uh, thinking they're very solid they believe in the great great spirit a very solid practice of treating one another here correctly how you'd want to be treated Uh, the, uh, the caretakers as they're called are visited by these extraterrestrials but there's some big graves up there with people seven feet and over blonde-haired, red-haired, light-skinned, fairly well-preserved. I mean, you know, where do they come from? I I, I don't mean there's just one out of many. Have you seen these or did you go I've seen pictures of them. Yeah, I saw They brought back still pictures. Not only did they do video, they brought back still pictures. So how they opened up these caves, they, they look just like mountains. They, I don't know, some... Who knows? I, I I don't know, but they got in there. Yeah, there's technology, <coughs> weapons, or things that can heal. There's spacecraft, so I'm told. But this travel stone came out of one of them where ancient records are kept. And yeah, this ancient language—it's a root race language. It's whatever came before the Sanskrit. I think From maybe North Senator North. Orrin Hatch of, of of Utah. You know, he came pretty close. Why did you say that? There's a lot going on in Utah. <laughs> a lot going on everywhere. Um, it's where the, you know, I, I, I don't know all of the things. I really don't care, but that's where some of our associate scientists are. I know what some of the things they're working on. What areas, what facilities there in Utah <clears throat> Well, mm-hmm. their own private laboratories. This guy, uh, I guess he was a chief master sergeant, the sergeant of sergeants or something, you know, the who's who of stripes. <laughs> he, asked, he came into the office one day and he said... Uh, I was on the commander's staff, and becoming an officer, I was still on the commander's staff, um, comes in, and he looks at me, and I'm, I really liked the guy, because he had the depth of his spirit, you know, besides being a good military man, and I said, uh, he looked at me, he said, you work for Kelly, and I knew, I knew where the records were, because we, know we don't exist and we never worked there, and the project never existed. And our conversations, this conversation never happened tonight. That kind of thing. But when he says, you worked for Kelly, that was a way of saying, we've looked at your records. Do you want to complete uh, your degree? Yes. Barry Goldwater was my sponsor. He was the commander's close buddy. But we knew him as General Goldwater. I'm very proud of that. And I served the, served it well. Um, Do you know if Kelly Johnson knew of the UFO and E.T. issue at all? <clears throat> oh, yeah. I, I would say he did. But he was focused on developing a job. There were five people in the world of his caliber. And there were three of them, three of that caliber in the United States. One was Kelly Johnson. The other one was jack northrup who lived in my neighborhood kelly johnson lived in our neighborhood i mean he lived across the verdugo valley he overlooked the um he looked like a chipmunk to me the greatest chipmunk in the world (laughs) you call him the chipmunk in fact the skunk that's where the skunk you know sort of like a chipmunk that was our symbol uh so all of these things are tied together in some way linked but not necessarily everybody knowing each other, but were they all headed in the same direction? You know, we don't... We assume they were. But the right hand and the left hand uh, and our levels of engineering, yeah, we knew what we were working on and what the probabilities were springing from it uh, and future development. uh, But where they ultimately were led, uh, where it led and what would spring from that, how it was used... I learned one thing from an associate scientist, development scientist, somebody whom I have the greatest, the highest respect, who was with the CIA. Uh, He says, you know, he says, the first thing we want to determine is who's turning the wheels on any project. He says, that's when we decide. This is what I did when I was with the CIA, he said... This is what I analyzed before I said yes on taking on a project. You see, who's turning the wheels? Who? What's the motivation? Why is it being done? I asked. It took well, after we first talked. I analyzed. Why is Dr. Stephen Greer doing this? I've done my research, some of it, or maybe a lot of it, and I've watched the happening. And you've been very dedicated to what you're doing. And. And professional. That's why I'm here tonight. That's why I'm speaking with you, Thank you. Thank you. and we still have those contacts around the world that can verify a lot of things. We all have our agreements that we signed and they're still, you know, to be honored. However, there isn't any reason why certain information can't be shared, but it's for the benefit of humanity. One of the things, one of the premises for fu- uh, founding This technology corporation that I did in 1998 was to bring forth these um, technologies that can help get rid of the toxics, that can clean the air, that help get rid of the uh, need for so much fossil fuel, or help it become more efficient, that can help humanity in the form of education, that makes it, helps clean up pollution. I already said that in various forms yes it is time and I can tell you personally that it's already started and I I can prove what we have come up with we can prove are these energy generation systems or can you speak about them the energy generation systems that the associates have brought forth uh, deal with using natural energies from planet earth And there is a natural harmonics of the planet. It's already been proven. One of our own Air Force uh, research uh, members, I think out of Wright-Patterson, or Dayton, Ohio, pardon me, uh, uh, mapped the energy system of the planet Earth. They've also discovered that there are craft underneath that sand, flying craft. I've never seen them. I don't know. NASA itself got involved in spending 10 million dollars of our taxpayer money to go in and get a certain thing that's only written about in mythology and history go back bring it out and try to duplicate it okay this i know to be true